Hello and welcome to The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. I am the founder of The New Story Company and the host of this podcast. You know, one of the ironic aspects about hosting a show called The New Story Is is that it implies a lot of things. It implies that we need new stories. It implies that new is necessarily better, which raises the question, according to who is any story new? What if the story at hand is not so new after all? What if it's an old story? What if it's a story as old as humankind itself? One that's been forgotten or minimized or deliberately marginalized through systems of oppression that lift some up and keep others held down? What if the story at hand is one that's been swallowed up by bigotry, by ignorance, by naivete, or by privilege? What if the story at hand is not so new after all. My guest today is an expert thinker, she's a thought leader, and a powerful voice in helping those who feel marginalized and whose experiences, among some big, oppressive, and complex systems of power, have subjugated them to feeling less than whole in the workplace, in everyday life, or even in war zones. I'm joined today by Yvonne Hutchinson. Yvonne is the founder and CEO of ReadySet, one of the country's biggest diversity, equity, and inclusion training firms that helps tech giants, political leaders, media outlets, and Fortune 500 companies speak more productively about racism and turn talk about change into real action. As a graduate of Harvard Law, Yvonne once worked as an international laborer and human rights lawyer for nearly a decade and in places as far away as Afghanistan, Nicaragua, and along the Thai-Burmese border in Southeast Asia before founding her company in 2015, which was inspired in part by her own experiences with racism in the workplace as a black woman. Yvonne's book is How to Talk to Your Boss About Race, Speaking Up Without Getting Shut Down, which equips readers with a framework to think about race at work and prepare them to have frank and effective conversations with leaders. Yvonne, welcome to The New Story Is. Thank you so much for making time to speak about your important work, and I really loved your book. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited for this conversation. You know, I feel like the best place for us to start is uh, with the opening line, literally the first line, the first four words of your preface of your book in which you say, let's cut the bullshit, right? So to kick our conversation (laughs) off, I'm wondering wondering if we could start by not only agreeing with one another to cut the bullshit in the course of our conversation today, but maybe talking a little bit about some of the proverbial or literal bullshit that surrounds discussions of race and racism today. What are folks from marginalized groups or marginalized identities really sick of having to either like talk around or try to break through <laughs> regarding their lived in experiences in the, in the modern day workplace. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for me, the first thing that sort of sticks out, and this is such a great opening question. What is the bullshit? Um, it, you know, is the fact that there are some people who aren't even willing to say the word racism. So, you know, you can't have a conversation if you're not going to, talk directly about the thing that you want to talk about. Right. And, you know, in my experience, it can be so hard for people just to call an action racist. You know, there's a saying that sometimes it feels like it's more um, uh, insulting or damaging to be called a racist than to actually do a racist action. And we see that all the time. We see it in the news when something's called racially motivated or racially tinged, you know, we see it at work and it's just a sort of fear of actually 
actually naming something racist. And not only the fear of naming it, but placing more of an emphasis on what we call an action than what impact that harmful action actually has. So I would say that that's... um, that's probably the most profound way I think that it shows up. And I think that um, the other um, aspects of the conversation that can feel uh, tricky or like people aren't really like talking about it kind of flow from that. Right. So just the the fact that, you know, people may not necessarily want to have the uncomfortable conversation. People want to sort of rely on easy narratives around racism going away. People you know, may get defensive and feel like you are calling them racist when you when you name racism. I think I, I think all of that stuff is just related to the fact that we are afraid to talk about race racism itself and being called, well, being called a racist is still considered taboo. And we often aren't focusing on the harm that racism causes and the impacts that has on marginalized people. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to get into the the difference between intention and impact, which which features pretty predominantly in mm-hmm. your book, and how important it is to distinguish mm-hmm. those two things, and how you know uh, trying to give white people who um, are are explicitly or implicitly racist or engaging in racist behaviors centers them in the story as opposed to centering the person who's being impacted yeah. and the groups who are being impacted yeah. historically. Because and, and let's just like zoom out for a second and set up where we're coming from in this in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know throughout your book, you were you're writing your book um, in 2020 into 2021. Mm-hmm. So the backdrop of mm-hmm. our conversation today, as we're recording this, mm-hmm. is uh, almost mm-hmm. two year two years and a few days past uh, the anniversary of of the murder of George Floyd. Um, mm-hmm. And you characterize uh, or, or describe, summarize, I should say, our time, uh, and this is a quote from your book, um, at a time in which uh, we see the rise of the whistleblower, a surge in interest in, system- in systemic racism, accelerated economic inequality, unequal trauma of the pandemic that has hurt people of color disproportionately, and a rise, a global rise in racist violence, end quote. And yet, of course, you know, racism is not new. Um, And in fact, when you obviously go back and scrutinize history of the United States Mm -hmm. and understand that slavery really built the country, that its legacy Mm -hmm. is bound up in racist and discriminatory laws and policies from housing policies and redlining to uh, systems like mass incarceration, um, mm-hmm. movements and, and policies like uh, militarized policing and the war on drugs and so on, mm-hmm. race is really becoming more, uh, I should say that racial issues, at least from, from my perspective as like, as a, as a, you know, middle upper class, like white man, um, that's how I was born and raised. It's the only perspective I'll ever have. I see more public awareness and more shared language uh, and more mm-hmm. you know popular concepts floating around in the ether at least the, the the circles in which I swim in my corners of modern America um, pertaining mm-hmm. to racism and discrimination and so my question is is it for, in the work that you're doing today does it feel any easier given the yeah not only like the fever pitch of terrible things that continues to happen that we're all subjected to and see on the mm-hmm. news and, and not, not to mention that affect, you know, some of our listeners and, and so many people directly every day. 
Is it getting any easier to engage people in the work that you've been doing, uh, especially in the last seven years since you, you founded your company? Or does it feel in some ways harder than ever uh, or harder as it, as it has been historically to break through and to do this important work? What do you think? Um, I don't think I can characterize it as easier or harder. I think it feels different. And I do think though, uh, what's most important about that sort of difference is a lot of the artifice is stripped away. Right. So I can talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about, um, what it felt like doing this work when I started my company in 2015, which actually wasn't that long ago and what it feels like, uh, today. Um, when I, when I started ready set, you know, there was this kind of focus on unconscious bias, this sort of idea that racism was still happening, but it was isolated. There was more like a few bad apples and, um, that it wasn't necessarily overt and we were sort of on this path to progress, you know, and that was during the Obama years. Um, And so there was a sort of kind of like optimism that the trajectory of the country was headed in a certain direction. And then, uh, you know, obviously what happened is we saw the election of Trump in 2017 and this kind of um, platforming of very, regressive, uh, racist, harmful ideas and the sort of like acceptance of them in the mainstream. And it Mm -hmm. was like this, it felt like this huge sort of like um, unmasking of, you know, what was really sort of bubbling beneath the surface. And in 2017, we also saw the rise of the Me Too movement. And I think it's no coincidence that you had this person in power who was, you know, accused of sexual harassment, who had a history of sexual harassment. And then you sort of have these women who feel like empowered to come forward and tell their stories and sort of um, really kind of uh, disillusioned by the election of that person. And then after the Me Too movement, um, a few years later, you have um, the you know the killing of George Floyd, and you know on the positive side, now we now have people who can say who say like yes, let's talk about uh, systemic racism, or at least especially in twenty twenty, let's talk about white supremacy, let's talk about complicity, let's talk about what we can do. But now in twenty twenty two, I feel like the pendulum's swinging back a little bit. You know, we're feeling some backlash in spaces. That doesn't mean we're going all the way back to where mm-hmm. we were in twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we're going back to where we were in 2015, right? But we're getting some pushback. I think people are tired. They're tired of talking about racism. Mm -hmm. Um, They are feeling like, you know, maybe they they had these big ideas that they were going to have more of an impact than they were, or they thought they were going to get more credit or rewards for what they're doing. You know, you're seeing these pushbacks Mm -hmm. against things like cancel culture and um, Mm -hmm. woke culture, Um, you're seeing a lot of weaponization of concepts that used to be widely accepted or that people were embracing in 2020 now being weaponized by the right or people who are against equity, inclusion, diversity to be something bad, right? You know, my favorite thing is... um, it's not my favorite thing, but but the the most salient example of this is critical race theory. Now, all the right had mm-hmm. to do is say, we're going to use this term, we're going to steal this term and use it, weaponize this language to refer to things that we don't like and say it's this. And then people are going to, you know, 
obviously either deny that what they're doing is this or um, try to, you know, n- not be seen as doing that, that bad thing or whatever. And, 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 and I went to law school, you know, I went to Harvard Law where there were critical race theorists, but that was at Harvard Law, right? Not in our elementary schools. And, mm-hmm. and, and what we're also seeing is critical race theory is actually a sort of Trojan horse for things like American history teaching you know, about the history of racism, um, et cetera. And, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't stop there, you know? Um, so I, I I think that there's Mm -hmm. definitely been some of this pushback and that opposition is more savvy, right? Because they are taking our language and sort of using it against us. They're saying cancel culture is wrong. We don't want that kind of accountability. Being woke is bad. You know, woke culture is killing da, 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 da. And it's just sort of, it's a simple rhetorical play that sort of, you know, centers and amplifies grievance and leverages our language against us. And it's just catchy enough to, to work. So, so in that way, it's, it's, it's harder too. And I think we're also kind of seeing this disconnect, I think, from and the, and I would say it's it's always been there, but to me it's quite profound. Um, from what's happening in the workplace and with employees in general, and the overlap between of that with diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, anti-sexism, etc. You know, at this point, Ready Set is one of the largest DEI firms in the country, and um, you know I feel like we still have to go in and make the case, even when the great resignation's happening, that you know companies who are scared about retention, who are scared about losing the employees, that this is something they need to invest in, even though it's the reason why employees are leaving, right? It's the reason why people are having Mm -hmm. a hard time keeping their talent. But the narrative around DEI is that it's this sort of siloed thing. The narrow around the narrative around anti-racism is that it's very limited, that it's a, an add-on, it's an optional, it's a nice to have. And what we're actually seeing that's like driving the labor market is quite the opposite, right? Is that these sort of initiatives are vital to retaining employees and attracting new talent. And we just don't see, I, I just feel like there's sometimes a disconnect between those two things. So I think, you know, I mm. I, I think the the challenge has always been evolving. Um, and this is the latest sort of iteration of that. Is it easier, harder, hard for me to say is different. What's fascinating as I'm listening to you is the, the speed at which the conversation like around the work, the public perception, how the, the language, the terms, uh, the public, like the, the, the discourse is changing is so it's almost, it's dizzying how quickly it all, it all yeah. happens. I mean, in the course, we just, we just, we just shrunk history down to seven years, which feels like a long time. And just in the course of <laughs> two years or 18 months, we mentioned how, how quickly everything changes, how language gets co-opted, mm-hmm. how, um, you know, it historically uh, 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 a black term like woke, which was rooted in the civil mm-hmm. rights movement, um, yep. has years later been co-opted, twisted and used to then like insult and denigrate people who are uh, some in some cases it's deservingly so right when it's when it becomes a hollow term to refer to um, mm-hmm. like social media activism or something or, or hollow non-activism. But how how the language mm-hmm. of, of woke specifically, how critical race theory you mentioned has been twisted um, by the far right, by Fox News to uh, imply that children are being taught that they're racist and, and these different things. It, it must be dizzying. And I'm wondering from your perspective as the CEO, as the founder of, of a company like Ready Set, a really popular DEI consulting firm, how much of your work 
would you say like institutionally is just in keeping in touch with what's actually happening and being discussed in the culture. Obviously, we have, we're going to talk about your book, mm-hmm. and your book is beautiful for the word nerd in me because it's it, it gives like very concrete strategies and tools and tips and advice about language, about manipulation and gaslighting, how to enlist um, allies through conversation. Like all these are really beautiful uh, and important uh, and difficult tactics to um, start to create change in the workplace. But I'm wondering from the from your point of view as the leader of this organization, mm-hmm. how how is it that you all keep up with the rapidly changing nature of the times and the language? Is it just a matter of like, quote unquote, paying attention to things as they unfold? Mm-hmm. Um, how much mm-hmm. of it is actually invested in um, how you're messaging and sharing your work with the world, how much of it is on the receiving end of trying to keep up with um, news cycles. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think, you know, in the book, I say, I talk about how quickly things change, and we highlight this in this interview, and then how, in some ways, it's still the same. I think history, I, I talk about this in my book a lot, but I think we are done a disservice in the way that we're taught our history, right? And I think we're sort of taught that rights are gained by individuals. And, you know, we're really sort of taught that that Martin Luther King Jr. quote, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, is how we should think about the history of this country and the history of you know, and that's not necessarily true. Um, and, and in the book, I try to reframe that where and instead, I think a lot of what we see is sort of like <clears throat> huge leaps in progress and then rollbacks, leaps in progress and then rollbacks. So if you go, um, you know, I, I like to start at radical reconstruction. If you look at some of the gains that were made at, during radical reconstruction, you look at the political representation of African-Americans, you look at the number of African-Americans who are voting, you look at the economic growth that you saw in those communities, and then you see the intentional rollback and extraction of resources from Black America during the Jim Crow movement, right? And then if you think about the rollbacks that came sort of after the civil rights movement, during the civil rights movement, you know, we had desegregation, we had affirmative action. And, you know, we like to sort of frame those policies as ineffective when in actuality, they had quite a positive impact, right? Like, um, you know, even, you know, desegregation, like there were, there was a short period where our schools were more integrated. Um, Affirmative action, you know, a lot of the black middle class that was in place in the 80s and 90s got to where they were in part because of affirmative action, right? Um, and, and we sort of saw, though, how the, the the rollback of those things with the Reagan era and the sort of the dismantling of that structure. And then even in modern times with the um, limitations that were placed on the Voting Rights Act um, and, the, and, and now today, um, you know, the advancements that we made during 2020, 2017, and, um, you know, uh, restrictions on voting rights uh, at the state level, these spate of anti-trans bills, the, you know, overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, the, just the sort of plethora of new bills and, and um, pushes to bring us you know, back to sort of where we were. And as we talk, the most recent thing is sort of the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial and verdict, where we're now sort of seeing a chilling effect on um, victims of domestic abuse, um, 
talking about the fact that the abuse happened and outlets being willing to report on abuse um, out of fear of, you know, claims that they may be an, engaging in defamation. Um, and so it, mm-hmm. it is within this context. I say all of this because it can feel like, oh, I've got to keep up with the news. This feels so dizzying. But what centers me is that this is part of a broader pattern. And when I recognize mm-hmm. that, hey, their pattern is push-pull, it's a tug of war, it's not, you know, a moral arc. And for all of the progress we're going to make, people are going to try to push us back. I think that's centering. And when we think about, okay, well, what do we need to be thinking about today? I think some of the things are new, but some of the things hasn't changed. Like I'm black. Anti-blackness has been around forever, right? Like I'm glad we're talking about systemic racism now, but let me tell you, it existed, you know, 10 years ago when I came out of law school, you know, and it existed for my parents, you know, anti-Asian violence has been around for a very long time. Um, and so some of these things, while the conversations talking about them may be new, um, you know, homophobia is not new. Um, transphobia is not new. I'm glad people, a lot of the conversations are people who have privilege recognizing that it's happening and saying we should do something Mm -hmm. about it. But the underlying issues are not new issues. And so like at ReadySide and just, you know, in life, I always try to encourage people, yes, to stay abreast of these movements so we can figure out like where the hotspots are and who's most in need. But understand that all of this is reflective of the underlying history and culture of white supremacy and patriarchy and exclusion, political, economic, social that we have, you know, in this country and globally, you know? And so that way, you know, when we keep that in mind, we're not just hopping from issue to issue. We're really looking at root causes and that's what we're trying to solve, right? When we go into an organization, we're not just trying to speak to uh, LGBTQIA plus employees because there's a new bill, that's come up. We're not trying to just say, oh, hey, it's Juneteenth. Let's talk about it. You know, we want to say, okay, what parts of these, these root causes are embedded into your particular systems and how do we address those first? So that's how I um, tend to think about it. Yeah. And I really appreciate you mentioning this idea that a lot of the the so-called issues that seem new are not new at all. And I want to kind of call call myself in the name of this show into that conversation, not to make it all about me, but because one of the one of the things that strikes me as, as funny or ironic or even potentially ignorant is to over-ascribe value onto something being new. Like at, at best, mm-hmm. there could be a romance to thinking like this is the new XYZ, whether we're talking about mm-hmm. like a product that's being launched in Silicon Valley or a conversation or, or an idea that can like fix everything. Mm -hmm. And so the question Mm -hmm. that gets begged is like, to whom is the story new first? Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. in in what, in what cases, in what ways is the story that we're discussing not new at all? Um, Especially Mm -hmm. from, from different perspectives, from a marginalized, uh, historically marginalized identity group who has been subject to systemic racism. Like you say, racism is not new. Homophobia is not new. Different forms of discrimination, uh, violence and stereotyping. These are not new subjects. If, if an individual is experiencing it as new for the first time, that's probably a call in themselves into examining um, 
the history, the roots of, of this and how it is part of a larger narrative, a much larger narrative mm-hmm. than the individual experience. I would love to ask mm-hmm. you a little bit about your own personal experiences um, yeah. because you mentioned in, in your book, you have some really interesting anecdotes, uh, not only about your career in law, but one of your first workplace experiences, um, which mm-hmm. was at, which, which sounded terrible, uh, but it was at a theme park. And I'm wondering if you could set up <laughs> this, this uh, introduction for us into the working world since your book is so much about the modern place, the, the modern workplace. And I think importantly, you mentioned in the book that the modern workplace is so deeply entrenched in, mm-hmm. in, in issues of racism and discrimination. It may be the biggest so-called battle fl- battlefront for people in experiencing mm-hmm. racism is in the workplace. And we'll, we'll come back around to the, the great resignation and, and uh, COVID-19 and everything. But um, you took an aptitude test for job placement uh, when you were 15 years old, I think, and at a, at a theme yeah. park in Texas. Yeah. Um, what happened yeah. with, with, with this test? <clears throat> okay. So yeah, this is, you know, so first let me just set the stage. I'm writing this book and, you know, a lot of writing a book is kind of like I, I, I described it, described it in one talk where it's like, <clears throat> it feels like opening a wound then digging around in it and closing it back up. And sometimes you um, find wounds you didn't even know you had or you forgot you had. Mm. And uh, and I included the story when I was writing the book. It was one of the last stories I included because it was so sort of buried in my mind. I talk a lot in the book about <clears throat> coming to terms with my identity and the marginalization I faced. And part of that journey was just that plausible deniability of every interaction being ascribed to something other than racism. So I was like in mm-hmm. denial for a huge part of my life that, you know, some of the interactions I was experiencing, issues I was experiencing were in part racism, particularly those when I was younger. Um, I think it's just really disconcerting to think about um people who are racist against young people. I'm a mom now, so it really breaks my heart that somebody could be racist against a child, yet plenty of people are. And um, and I think those are sort of the experiences that came up later as I was writing the book. The recent ones were easy to sort of, those ones were easy to find, open up and seal up again. The other ones, you know, were buried kind of deep in my memory. Um, uh, but yes, this is the memory of my first job. And, you know, it wasn't terrible. Uh, I did learn the value of a dollar. I say that in the book. It's true. Uh, I took this job. Um, I, w- I wanted to. So backstory, this is a very privileged reason to take a job. I wasn't trying to feed my family or anything. We were, we were middle class. I talk about my socioeconomic privilege quite a bit. But I wanted to go to Europe. And my mom, she was still a single mom. She couldn't afford it. So she said, well, you're going to have to get a job, save up for the summer to help pay for this trip that you want to take with all of your bougie white friends in this all white school you go to. So I said, yes, mom. So I go to and they, oh. <laughs> I'm not supposed to name, say the name of the beep, place. So I'm going to take, we're going to beat that take out. That. <laughs> thank, thank you. So I go to the theme park and, um, you know, it's kind of like a job fair, and I think there's like interviews and you like fill out application. I think there's a little bit of a test. And I just remember feeling like I aced it. You know, I was like, I was a nerd. I was a drama nerd, um, honor student, uh, very extroverted, gregarious. Um, so I just, and a charmer, according to myself, I was a charmer. Uh, so I just had no doubt that I had 
charmed the people who I spoke to. I knew I did well at that test because I did well at every other test, you know? Um, I'm not saying that this is like a rational thought. I'm just saying this is how Yvonne's teenage brain worked. And, um, and so I was like really just gearing up to, um, leverage my theater training and, um, be a prominent face of the theme park, you know, work in costume, maybe get on stage, you know, um, maybe be a greeter. And it should be said that there is a theme park hierarchy in terms of roles, um, you know, I would say at the top for a theme park located in Dallas, Texas, Arlington, Texas, is uh, is uh, places that are air conditioned. <laughs> so, you know, those <laughs> sort of roles at the top. And then you had like, yeah, you had like greeters. They were, uh, you know, ticket takers. Then you had people who, uh, like, I would say the food service and actually the people who were in costume kind of like were a parody because the costume work was really hard. It was so hot in those costumes. You would like pass out and you couldn't breathe, but you got to like perform and be under in, in front of people. Um, and then in food service, you know, you just kind of got to be in the back, slinging some food and you know, whatever. Um, in any case, and then at the bottom, sorry, I forgot the bottom because that's where I was. Playing. And then at the bottom were like park services. And that was a, you know, euphemism for janitorial services and, um, uh, kind of people who cleaned up the park full time. Now there's nothing wrong with inherently wrong with janitorial services at all. You know, um, I, my mother was a, a cleaner, but I, my grandmother, I mean, was a cleaner, but you know, I, I, I say in the book, what I noticed is that the people that were in park services tended to look more like me my first day. And the people who had jobs at the top of the hierarchy were a lot paler, shall we say. And you know, the thing about park services, you weren't allowed to not move. This is a really fascinating kind of way of thinking about it. You always had to be cleaning, picking up, looking like you were doing something. Some of those other jobs, you could like sit behind the counter, talk, da, 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 da. You always had to be working in park services. And when you sort of look at some of the... um, uh, Like, I, you know, I I follow things like the, the Tesla black workers lawsuit or whatever, the class action lawsuit, and thinking about how they were constantly needed to be working. You know, that Mm. image that you're always engaging in manual labor as a person of color visibly Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. uh, for the purposes of this brand or whatever. Um, Like that was very much part of it too. And, you know, I remember thinking when I got the assignment and my first day on the job, I remember thinking, huh, what if I like, did I, what did I get right? Maybe I just got to like work my way up the ladder. Maybe like, you know, I just got to prove myself and and, and none of that mattered. Right. And of course it was like for a summer. So like, what was it? It's not like I was going to get a a magical promotion, but I, I was never moved. I was never recognized for my work. And you know, now, you know, so many years later, I look back on that moment and I go, huh, And I say in my book, maybe it was something, maybe it was nothing, but that's usually the way racism functions in the workplace. You know, maybe it's nothing that all of the people who work in janitorial services are black and brown and all the people who are taking tickets and sitting in air conditioned offices are white. Maybe that's nothing, but maybe that's something. Um, Right. One of of the more insidious, I'm sorry to interrupt you, uh, but one of the more insidious elements that seems to recur in conversations about experiences of, of racism 
is this internalization of it and how it seems to like be placed on an individual who's experiencing this, the discrimination to assume that they are the problem and to assume that it's their yeah. fault, assume that they haven't like all the gatekeeping yeah. and, and gaslighting and manipulation that places somebody mm-hmm. that isolates somebody like psychologically and emotionally, which, you know, mm-hmm. I've never experienced, but is, is, is as I try to imagine it a level of, you know, psychological, an emotional uh, loneliness that I, I have a hard time even imagining how how it feels. And yet, and maybe we can take this to transition to, to talk about the book. This is a common experience. And, and you actually mentioned in your book yeah. that individuals who are trying to confront racism or discuss uh, racist policies and, and trying to work on DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusivity efforts within their workplace have to be equipped and expect a yeah. level of like backlash yeah. if it's backlash or just resistance uh on a more innocuous like side of the scale um yeah. and that gaslighting occurs in which they are marginalized within themselves and, and made to doubt that these things are yeah. happening can you speak to that a little bit yeah i well i will say just like hearing you say you've never experienced it my my, my mind just went Whoa, whoa, what would life be like if I never had that weight? Because it's a weight, right? Like, what would it be like if my brain didn't have that drag, that cognitive drag around how I was perceived and if I was all making it up and if I was too sensitive and maybe there's a different way to say the thing I'm thinking about and how is it that, like, other people can say stuff and it's perfectly fine, but when it comes out of my mouth, it's not. You know, like, like if I just, like, if that, all that noise, this way, like, if I could just live in a world where that static wasn't there for a day what would that feel like that's what i was thinking about when you asked that question um but then at the same time this is not to make you feel uh weird or put on the spot i also think there's kind of liberate like there's some sort of something liberatory um about having lived with that and then being able to call it what it is and choosing to turn it off and i think um Like, that's important as well. I don't know. I, I always feel like, though, it is in the back of your mind. It does needle you. And the, and the retaliation is real. I, I don't tell the story often, but I will today because I'm feeling saucy. Um, they, I, you know, after I published the book, I swear to God, this person did this. Um, you know, I sort of talk about my experiences leading up to writing the book. What made me want to start Ready, Set? Um, and, um, like, what I wanted other people to never to experience. Um, Former employer uh, read the book um, and got very upset. And we did not have an amicable separation to begin with. And they contacted my lawyer. I can say this because it's not covered by NDA. They contacted my lawyer to try to get my lawyer to join them in like trying to silence me. And I know this because my lawyer called me and shared a recording of the message that this person left for them. And, uh, you know, I say this because the retaliation didn't stop. Like, it just didn't stop. And and there's a sort of like, you know, we're going to get you for speaking out. And also, it was so validating because I was like, yo, this dude really is an asshole. Like, this dude was a total jerk. It was not me. 
Because who does that, right? Like who calls somebody's right. lawyer and says, you know, like, I really think we should turn against her. What does she think she's doing? She's she's giving other good people who are fighting against racism a bad name, right? Like it's like, it is just so stereotypical and like right there. And, you know, but for so long, even in my relationship with this particular individual, I thought, Maybe it's just me. Like, maybe I'm just too sensitive. Maybe I need to be doing my job differently. Maybe I need to be doing it better. Like, you know, like running myself ragged. It was all bullshit. It was all like just navigating somebody else's neuroses. And I think, you know, we talk in the book, I talk talk a lot about how the the thing that racism does so well is it wastes our time. And that's in some ways a bastardization of a Toni Morrison quote. That's sort of about the kind of collective tax of navigating in a racist society, what it does to people, how it, Mm. um, how much energy uh, we spend on it. And it's just such a, it's such a common experience. And I think the thing that, that I also have to acknowledge is that I, escaped it, at least in part, I still am in some ways beholden to that system because I had the privilege of starting my own business and being able to grow it and having the economic security to do that as well as not, not everybody does that. You know, there's still a lot of people who are beholden to the constant gaslighting, constant manipulation, constant microaggressions that have a very real and negative impact on their mental health. And then retaliation, both pressure, like, Pressure, like do something to improve the culture and then retaliation if they don't do it in the right way. Um, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really curious. This is, um, this is kind of like a half baked thought, but so, so I, I will say to set up my next question as like a straight white man upper upper middle class born and raised to an attorney shout out dad um (laughs) in in modern america i i would never venture to to even conjecture and say that i've experienced like that kind of marginalization on the basis of of what you uh in the book call uh social identity right like the construct the complexities the Mm -hmm. nuance that comprises a person's sense of self through their associations with with groups and and identities Mm -hmm. like race, gender, class, country of origin, age, religion, and so forth. But I have been in different workplace scenarios. I was actually just reading the news before our interview and saw that the White House is now uh, paying their their interns. Uh, I was a White House intern once upon a time, and I thought, I I bet they're probably not going to retroactively pay me for that that labor. But but there there have been been scenarios, no, there have been scenarios in the work, in workplaces in which I definitely felt my labor exploited, felt my, my, you know, my place um, really marginalized, manipulated, um, like tests being used to... Mm -hmm. uh, to gauge my um, loyalty to the cause or to the group in ways that like, <sighs> kind of fucked me up, like as, as a young person. Yeah. And even in seemingly yeah. like innocent, like new agey, like, like yoga community kind of environments, um, power yeah. dynamics and really poor boundaries yeah. being like being exploited to, to exact weird mm-hmm. um, dynamics, like mentally, emotionally, and psychologically. So my, my question Obviously, I don't want to minimize the direct, deliberate, like racism, patriarchy, misogyny that that 
our, you know, governing our conversation about your book and, and having such a big impact on, on so many people nonstop. I, I wonder, though, if if there's a connection between these forces, these systems of discrimination and, and racism and repression and just like power and money and authority or mm-hmm. a culture in America mm-hmm. about like deferral of responsibility um, and like egotism, like because why else would these things in, in in my unique circumstance, and I'm not asking you to please to like therapize or figure this out for me, but I am trying to connect the dots even loosely, perhaps irresponsibly, please, please say so if I am. Um, mm-hmm. there, you know, is, is like the, the abuse of power um, that people is, is the power that is held in workplaces something that, just just is is so likely to get exploited and be you and like held over people is that part of the conversation that we're having mm-hmm. that's like some sort of in, like insidious twisted abuse of power in workplaces in in modern america has it always been the case i don't know but it seems like there's something there regarding power and the responsibility that we we ought have when we're dealing with people and their minds and their hearts that isn't being tended mm-hmm. to perhaps in the best ways, given the kinds of stories that so many of us can share. There's a lot there. <laughs> take, take of that, that statement, yeah. which you will, um, what comes up for you? Yeah, I think, I think, so I think it's an, I think it's an interesting call out and I think it actually does a, that, that observation does a really good job in, in sort of connecting what can feel like a limited fight you know, a fight that only affects certain kinds of people to a sort of broader context. I think what you're identifying the relationship of power and exploitation at work is absolutely there. And it's historical, right? Like when you look at who died in the shirtwaist fire, it wasn't black people. You know, when you look at like who were who was being utilized as child labor, it wasn't just black people, right? When you think about like how the lifespan of the average factory worker during the industrial revolution, you know, like that wasn't, you know, but I think there is a sort of um, relationship between exploitation um, and capitalism. And And I'm not the kind of person who will just off the paint say like, you know, capitalism is racism, all cap. Like I don't, I don't like capitalism as an economic system. I also don't like the fact that people talk about capitalism very broadly when they're identifying other social ills and um, don't necessarily do the work in unpacking what is social, what is economic, what is rooted to a system or an ideology, et cetera. I say that big caveat because I do think one of the features of capitalism in our country, particularly where there's a decrease in social protections, is the increased exploitation of people. So to your example of the White House not paying its interns, that's unpaid labor, right? Whatever way you slice it, that is like exploitation that's unpaid labor, you know, in a body that can very much afford to like pay for that. And there are capitalist reasons why that body chooses not to, right? Because you can get talent without paying for it. It's legal. And we've like, you know, totally gutted our um, workforce regulation to make it really easy to exploit people. I think though that there is overlap 
between that and the issues that marginalized, marginalized people face. Um, and, it, and I think it can manifest a few ways. Like sometimes marginalized peoples are canaries in the coal mine, right? The sort of institution that I was talking to you about before, very toxic workplace culture. I think that marginalized people were more likely to feel it first, more likely to feel it more intensely, but everybody was impacted by that. And that happens at workplaces like, you know, across contexts, right? You can have a workplace that just has a really shitty... It happened throughout the pandemic, too, with, yeah, with frontline exactly, workers. exactly. You can sort of have these, like, underlying cultural dynamics that are really not good, but are enacted on marginalized folks first, are just most acutely felt by those folks, etc. And I also think there's something about how like your opportunities out, right? Like I think that like, you know, there is a world in which you could have been, and this is not to pick on the White House, although I do do a beef with it. There's like, (laughs) there's worlds where you could have been a White House intern and then become a staffer and then somebody saw potential. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what the career path inside the White House looks like for all of the positions, but, um, you know, certain people, Um, have an option to navigate cultural dynamics in a way to achieve their way out of cultural dynamics, to take on positions of power and enact that power on other people that other people don't. Right. And so that may be where the privilege comes in too. Um, But I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. I think that they're connected. Um, And I, Mm -hmm. I, but I also think like that being said, you can have workplaces that work really well for people from dominant groups and don't work so well for people from marginalized groups. And finally, I just want to acknowledge that like we talk a lot about tech ready set started with the tech sector, but like, you see this everywhere. I came from nonprofit. I came from government work and, as a lawyer. And my career, as you can tell from the book, is that that is a thread that weaves throughout my career. And quite often mm-hmm. um, uh, impact organizations, organizations that are for good are in my in my experience can even be worse than organizations that are motivated by profit because they sort of like take these poisonous dynamics and, um, you know, wrap them up in the guise of like doing well or being part of a family or whatever, um, or doing some kind of social mission. And, um, uh, and they're, and they're just as problematic, uh, just with an extra layer of gaslighting on top of them. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you saying Ivan there, that there's like a connection between all these different systems and all these different ideas. And I, and I, I don't know if it's the, the attorney in you that, that ever president attorney who, who adds the caveats and, but brings definition and substance to ideas that can really easily become very binary um, and, and very and either or like black or white, yes or no. Um, throughout your book, you, you're constantly calling our, our attention as readers to um, to note the fact that racism tends to exist, especially in workplaces, but throughout throughout the world, I, I would venture to over over generalize and overstate on a spectrum and, and not a binary. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the the common threads of our conversation that we've been having is to understand uh, that there's a lot of nuance uh, and, a, and a lot of gray. And it's the conversation about mm-hmm. race, racism, and the experience of discrimination, especially in workplaces, is usually more nuanced than mm-hmm. you are a racist, this place is racist. And if only for how that tends to shut people down, right? The people in positions of power, how it shuts them down, how they get defensive, how they deflect, and, and, then, and then do all of the things that we just talked about in terms of 
isolating somebody or may, or, or uh, you know, uh, psychologically and emotionally putting it upon them or, or making it their fault. Um, I, I, I want to be very conscious of our time because you've been generous with it in just a, a couple of minutes. I wonder if we can maybe re- like rip through some rapid fire questions because I'd lo- I, sure. I want to hear uh, your, your opinion about the great resignation. We've talked about it a little bit and it's had a tremendous yeah. impact, of course, uh, COVID between COVID-19 and, and people um, uh, feeling compelled or are needing to leave the workplaces and that affecting usually first, as you mentioned, the, the proverbial canary in the coal mine, historically marginalized groups. Um, how are you making sense of the great resignation as a, as a cultural phenomenon that, that is in the headlines every month? Um, uh, mm-hmm. Is the media getting anything wrong about the great resignation from your viewpoint as um, as the founder of Ready Set and doing the work that you're doing in DEI, uh, or is our is like quote unquote our public perception of why people are migrating out of the workplace either because they have to rely on themselves for childcare because they have mm-hmm. statistically lower pay? I'm thinking of women in the world who have statistically lower pay women of color, people of color who have been marginalized um, or switching jobs. How are you seeing the landscape? In, and I know this is a big question, but in, in, um, in summary, how are you viewing the, the landscape as changing uh, with regard to the Great Resignation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like super because like so, so many employees – have been impacted by the great resignation. I think it's really important to like think about how it, like what it actually is <laughs> to your point. I like to define things. I, I did an interview where somebody kind of reframed it as the great um, renegotiation. And I thought that, that was a really interesting slash good reframing. You know, I think mm. what we're seeing, we're not seeing people just sort of like leave the workforce, although we have lost people. We're a lot of times with the great resignation, we're just seeing people move on to other types of employment. And I think what's driving that is just the, the fundamental changes that COVID put on the social and economic contract. I think that, um, Prior to COVID, particularly workers who were in essential essential workers, you know, and that's like we're seeing a lot of people in those fields choose to leave. Um, you know, there was a sort of narrative around, oh, you're really appreciated. Oh, you know, like you're doing this you're like crucial work at the beginning of the the pandemic. You're a hero to really like let's we're going to trade in your lives in service of commerce. <laughs> money mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. you don't really need to wear that mask we're not going to give you ppe we expect you to show up to work every day please don't complain about it you know and it was very, just sort of became very um clear um and particularly in late 2020 early 2021 when we started to see these shifts that you know workers um lurker, workers started to feel disposable in a different way. And so I think that that drove a lot of it, particularly frontline workers um, and especially lower wage workers who were also frontline because they were expected to sacrifice their lives for seven, eight dollars an hour. Who's going to do that? Right. Um, and and I, I think you also saw more broadly a renegotiation of a social contract and people and that people started to look at their relationships to work very differently. And I think remote work played a part, but just this sort of idea that like, 
you know, the pandemic was really traumatic socially and work is like, but one relationship, one way we show up in our lives in general. And people start to realize like there are more important things, or I want to do a different kind of work, or I'm not willing to be treated like this anymore to make money. You know, it put things in perspective. It gave people literal distance from their offices, distance from their coworkers, distance from their colleagues to really sort of evaluate and isolation to kind of evaluate what was meaningful and important to them. There's a lot of overlap in what we see, what drives workers to leave and the work that we do in DEI. If you have a culture where people don't think they can grow, if you have a culture where people feel shut down, if you have a culture where people don't feel appreciated, if you have a culture where parents like are unrecognized and are just, you know, I got to ch- ch- apologize for my baby who's crying while I'm in a meeting. Well, you shouldn't have scheduled me in back-to-back meetings in the first place. I have a, you know what I mean? Like, like all of this stuff where that's not recognized, supported, where people don't get what they need, they're going to move on. They're going to exercise their power as an employee to move on. Right. And I think there was a lot of sort of recognition of that power and recognition of the fact that, Hey, like now's the time to like exercise it. So I think, you know, I, there's a, there's a lot of drivers that drive up employee attrition that kind of overlap with the work that we do. And I think there's still, like I said, at the top of this sort of interview, uh, yeah, a so slowness on behalf of the company um, of companies to sort of recognize that. And I don't think like a real, recognition of the cost to attrition is like super expensive. Like we had attrition during COVID and it was so very expensive for us as a company. And I had to make it a real um, huge priority to like make sure our employees were taken care of and make sure that they were compensated fairly and keep them happy and all the stuff. And, you know, in the end, it ended up being a huge advantage and cost saving measure. And I don't think a lot of companies, I think some, they get that somewhat, but they, I don't, I still think they're not connecting with what it takes. I think uh, I'll say this, I'll stop. I think there's an old school frame around employee retention that is not caught up with the, the new Reality. So employee retention maybe could have been solved with increased pay, increased promotion opportunities, et cetera. Now what we're really talking about is work-life balance, benefits, culture, Mm -hmm. like that's, you know, in office versus remote. That's like who's really winning the talent war right now. You're not just going to win the talent war on comp. And I think it's taking companies a while to catch up to that. I really appreciate you mentioning the overlaps and the, like the synergy between what you see affecting companies who are going through their their DEI initiatives um, and, and what's been affecting workers writ large in light of of the COVID nineteen pandemic. And we should call it the the great uh, renegotiation, maybe instead of the great resignation. I like that reframe but quite don't, a bit. That's not my term. I don't want to take credit for, and I, I wish I could remember his name. Um, who who who. Yeah, yeah, but this is not a wife on Hutchinson term. I'll look it up and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes just so we get that proper attribution there. Um, but yeah, for, yeah, to, yeah. To, and to understand more about what's going on in the modern workplace, um, you'll have to pick up Ivan's book, How to Talk to Your Boss About Race, Speaking Up Without Getting Shut Down. Yvonne, thank you so much for joining us. You've been so generous and gracious with your time. I could, I want to keep asking you like a hundred more questions, but we'll wrap it up there for now. Thank <laughs> you so much for joining us on The New Story Is. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We'll be back soon 
with a fresh interview for you. In the meantime, if you're feeling generous and want to help support our show, please rate and review The News Story Is wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find the show. Until next time, I'm Dave Rosillo. This has been The News Story Is. Bye for now.